state law. Welcome to Talking Animals. My name is Bev. I'm sitting in for Duncan today. We've got a a great show lined up, but I wanted to start Talking Animals out with a little tribute, a little nod to Duncan's guest last week, who is Dr. Jane Goodall, one of my personal heroes. And if you'd like to hear the complete interview, you can go to TalkingAnimals.net. We've got uh, two great guests in the studio today. We've got Ed Sherwood from the Tampa Bay Estuary Program and a new news person, Chris Young, who's going to be uh, helping helping me take on this very important topic of the Tampa Bay Estuary and all the things that um, are going on in your own backyard, whether you live on the water or you're, or you're just in the Tampa Bay area. There's an incredible environmental... I'm sorry, I'm stubborn over my words. There is an environmental miracle going on in Tampa Bay 
that affects essentially the whole world because this is the uh, nursery of for the uh, fish for ever, ever all, all, all small sea creatures start out in the estuary. So uh, I wanted I'll introduce um, Ed Sherwood, but I did want to mention at the top of the hour, and then as we uh, wrap things up, he will be speaking at New World Brewery's Pints of Science series on May 10th. So we're not taking calls today, but if you have any questions, you can email or text WMNF.org or text at, I'm looking for the text number. There it is, uh, 813-433-0885. You can send a text question or comment or email to DJ at WMNF. Well, good morning, fellas. Thanks for being here today. Good morning. Good morning. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Uh, Again, this is Ed Sherwood and uh, Chris Young from the newsroom. Ed, uh, please give us a little overview of what the Tampa Tampa Bay Estuary Program is all about. Yeah, when I explained who we are and what we do, the the most basic uh, fact about estuaries and what an estuary is, is where basically freshwater meets the sea. So it's an incredible um, mixing zone along our coastal environments that creates a lot of diversity in both habitats and fish and wildlife. And our program uh, is one of 28 national estuary programs um, designated by Congress as estuaries of national significance. And what that allows us to do is to tap into federal resources that we match with uh, local governments in the region through an inter- uh, local agreement and partnership uh, to further protect and restore the Tampa Bay estuary. Well, I've looked at your website, which I'll mention several several times during this conversation. It's T B E wait T B E P dot O R G. The that stands for the Tampa Bay Estuary Program. Um, it's a huge, um, very detailed website. But one thing that I really wanted to mention off off the top of my head, I found on the website that the uh, Tampa Bay Tampa Bay I guess system of itself is about 400 square miles. Yep, yep. Well, uh, that's incredible to me. I mean, I've lived here my whole life and I didn't know, you know, those kind of numbers, but that that astounded me. Yeah, so we manage the bay in sort of compartments or what we call bay segments. Mm -hmm. So Tampa Bay itself, the water area in Tampa Bay comprises about 400 square miles and that includes old Tampa Bay Hillsborough Bay, Middle Tampa Bay, and Lower Tampa Bay, and then some minor bay segments, Boca Ciega Bay, Tierra Bay, and Mantee River. Okay. And that 400 square miles basically is the open water area of which about 2,200 square miles of land drains to. So we work very much within a watershed uh, Mm -hmm. type environment that spans uh, six counties, portions of six counties in the region, uh, and three main municipalities sit on our, our policy board. Yeah, I'm looking at your website right now. The um, the watershed basically encompasses all of Hills, well, in, in, entirely all of Hillsborough County, part of Pasco County, nearly all of Pinellas County, and into a bit of Polk County, and then a good portion of Manatee County. So in a teeny portion of Sarasota County. Okay, so. okay. Oh, yeah, yeah I see it. Range. I see it. <laughs> and uh, the the maps and a lot of these things we're talking about can be found yeah. on the website. But I was particularly interested in uh, the map that you had of the uh, the creeks, the freshwater sources that flow into Tampa Bay. So if you want to give us a little uh, description of why that's important and how that factors into the estuary 
is a bigger picture and maybe some of the animals that kind of come and go from fresh to salt? Because I know a lot of people think they're saltwater fish and freshwater fish and never the two shall meet, but that's not the case. So, Yeah, so when we started as a program back in 1991, a lot of our focus was in the bay and the important uh, habitat in the bay is seagrass, underwater grasses mm-hmm. in, in, in the bay. But uh, recently we've started moving up into the watershed. So important connections with the land uh, of that 2,200 square miles with the bay itself are these smaller tidal creek systems that either drain directly in the bay or to larger tidal rivers like the Hillsborough, Alifaya, Little mm-hmm. Mantee, Mantee Rivers. Um, those, basically those conveyances are, are the highways of which our stormwater and rainfall makes its way into the bay and creates that dynamic estuarine habitat where the mix of freshwater and saltwater occurs. And those those tidal creeks, which number over 100 in Tampa Bay and about 300 going all the way down to the Charlotte Harbor region, are, are very important filtering um, areas for all that stormwater that's coming into yeah. the bays themselves. Um, that in and of itself, they serve as as kidneys to the bay, basically. They're, they're the polishing a lot of the water that's um, received into our estuaries. So they're very important. Um, they're highly productive, uh, especially in southwest Florida, where we have a very warm tro- uh, subtropical environment that's transitioning to a tropical environment uh, because of warmer te- temperatures. Uh, so they are basically fish factories. They right. are you know, the, the nursery habitats for a lot of important recreational and commercial fish species like snook, redfish, uh, sea trout, uh, and, and blue crabs and other right. crustaceans that are important to the overall environment and economy of Tampa Bay. Yeah, I know a lot of uh, people that fish, their ears perked up when you said snook and the, uh, the redfish. Um, my, my dad used to fish off of a, a little dock in Sweetwater Creek, and he would just catch palm-sized redfish, you know, by the dozens, catch and release. But they were clearly um, growing to maturity in the little uh, tidal area. So, um, I, like I said, I think a lot of people mistakenly think there are saltwater fish and freshwater fish, but you, your mullet come upstream into freshwater, I mean, into pure freshwater, which is an amazing thing to me. Um, do, they, do they breed in the estuary as well? Uh, yeah, I, I actually <laughs> I have a special affection for redfish. Actually, when I moved uh, to Florida with uh-huh. my family in the late 1980s, that was one of the first saltwater species I learned how to fish for okay. uh, through fishing with my dad in the bay. And then later on, when I went to college, I actually did my master's research on trying to outplant or stock uh, redfish that mm-hmm. were raised in a hatchery out into the Chazowitzka River along the Springs Coast um, just to kickstart their populations. Um, so, yeah, they they breed offshore, typically outside of Tampa Bay in oh. these, these large mm-hmm. pods, and they're a drum uh, a member of the drum right. family of fishes, so they make these loud uh, pronunciations in their spawning aggregations, and then the eggs that are produced basically make their way into the estuaries, usually up into these tidal creeks and, and larger tidal rivers, where they um, settle out and start growing as small uh-huh. juvenile species, right. and then they move down into the estuary until they, be, they reach adulthood, and then move off shore to those spawning aggregations. So they're they're literally migrating from probably the Gulf, the deep water into the the yep. shallower water, right? Uh, one thing, I don't want to jump around too much, but I saw on the website, the Tampa Bay, for the most part, isn't that deep. 
And I know there's been dredging for, for boats and uh, shipping and things like that. But if you want to talk a little bit about that, because that'll get us into some more important things about the, the flat areas and the things that grow in the flat areas. But um, just a little overview of, of the depth and the, um, you know, when, when I'm, I was trying to imagine somebody driving across the bay listening to the program, and they look out over Howard Franklin Bridge, and they see this huge amount of water and imagining that it's hundreds of feet deep or something, you know, just, you know, just not really understanding what they're looking at. So maybe you could give us a little of the, the geography or the underwater topography of the bay from, you know, north to south or however you'd like to describe, yes. excuse me, describe it. Yeah, certainly uh, we're a shallow uh, tidal estuary. So on average, the depth is only about 11 feet throughout Tampa Bay. There are steeper portions, particularly along the, the shipping channels um, that lead up into our port regions. And then probably the deepest portion of the bay is in and around uh, Egmont Key, the Fort DeSoto area, that, that main shipping okay. channel that approaches about 100 feet there. But as you mentioned, a lot of the bay is composed of these shallow tidal flats. Mm-hmm. Uh, oftentimes uh, populated by underwater seagrasses. Right. Uh, and we have a transition of different seagrass types from the mouth of the bay, more turtle grass dominated seagrass beds to a mix of turtle grass, manatee grass, and then shoal grass uh, seagrass beds as you move further up into the mm. bay. And if you reach into like old Tampa Bay and Hillsborough Bay, like portions of town and country safety harbor, and portions of Hillsborough Bay along Bay Shore or the kitchen area uh, south of the Alfire River. A lot of those seagrass beds are dominated by what's called shoal grass, which is more of an ephemeral species. It means that it, it oftentimes can come and go based on the environmental quality. Um, and that's what we've been seeing as of late. We've, we had a, a big uh, area of coverage of, of seagrass in upper Tampa Bay, particularly in old Tampa Bay and, and Hillsborough Bay. Uh, we actually peached peaked in coverage around 2016 mm-hmm. uh, to well over the um, long-standing goal that we established for Tampa Bay of, of reaching above 40,000 acres. Uh, actually, in 2016, it reached 41,655 acres, so we were exceeding that goal then. But since that time, we've seen sort of the attrition of those major seagrass beds, and that has profound effects on a lot of the fish and wildlife that depend on that foundational habitat wow. in our estuary. Wait, would this be a good point to play the news clip? Or would you rather just talk? Uh, whatever you like. Okay, yeah, that, well, we're, we're going to hear uh, a news clip that our guest, our other guest, Chris Young, uh, produced yesterday. I, I guess, was it yesterday, Chris? It was on Monday. Okay, on Monday. Yes. And um, we're going to hear that, and then we're going to talk a bit more about seagrass. I want to find out more about seagrass. So um, here you go. Here's Chris Young reporting for WMNF. Tampa Bay has lost more than 4,000 acres, or 12% of its seagrasses. That's a big deal. That was Barbara Sheen Todd at today's Tampa Bay Regional Planning Council meeting. The data is from a report on seagrass findings released by the Southwest Florida Water Management District. Assistant Director of the Tampa Bay Estuary Program, Maya Burke, says that the Tampa Bay was not always like this. Um, So since 2016, which was when we had sort of reached peak coverage, we've exceeded our restoration goals and had water as clear as it was in the 1950s to support uh, more than 41,000 acres of seagrass to now. We basically have seen a loss of more than 11,000 acres of seagrass and more than 6,000 of those acres um, lost are in um, old Tampa Bay. She blames the increase of nutrient pollutants for this dramatic change 
change in seagrass. Nitrogen's the primary pollutant for Tampa Bay. That's, that's uh, something that stimulates algae growth. And when we have too much algae growing in the water, it makes it hard for sunlight to reach from the surface of the bay all the way down to the bay bottom. Um, and if sunlight can't make its way all the way to the bay bottom, then there's no sunlight to support um, the growth of seagrasses. The Tampa Bay Estuary Program encourages people to reduce their nutrient pollution by skipping fertilizer during rainy summer months and driving fuel-efficient vehicles. For WMNF News, I'm Chris Young. Thank you, Chris. And Chris joins us live in the studio. And I was wondering, uh, you, you mentioned a little bit about how you got interested in seagrass. We're going to talk, talk now a little bit more about seagrass. Yeah, definitely. So um, the news director, Sean Canan, actually uh, suggested that I attend virtually a Tampa Bay Regional Planning Council meeting. And they mentioned a lot of issues affecting Tampa Bay, um, from environmental issues to financial issues and stuff like that. And um, Barbara Sheen Todd had mentioned this sharp decline in seagrasses. And I found it pretty interesting, so I looked it up and um, I read the Tampa Bay Times article and it mentioned that seagrass, I mean, was peaked in 2016 and... um, it was doing great, and now it just had such a sharp, over 4,000 acres of a decline. Mm. So I thought that was very, very interesting. So I contacted um, the Tampa Bay Estuary Program and talked to Maya Burke, and she just explained that um, a lot of things were happening and that seagrass has been declining and uh, that nitrogen was a big part in that. So it was a, it was a good conversation. Obviously, the, um, the news, uh, the little clip was only a minute 30, but we talked for about eight to 10 minutes just about seagrass and uh, just the Tampa Bay. Very cool. Um, Yeah, I'm looking at the numbers here. In the 1950s, this is from your news report, there were 41,000 acres of seagrass. And now there's, let's see, there's been a loss of more than 11,000 acres. So Ed, would you explain to listeners why why seagrass matters? Go into that as much depth as you can. (laughs) I think it's a huge, huge important thing and, and not to fertilize you know, your your beautiful green lawn because that water is going into, the runoff is going into the storm drains. And where do the storm drains go? Yeah. They go into the bay eventually or uh, a retention pond, which usually is tied into the bay, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, as I mentioned at the start of our program back in the early 1990s, that was basically the primary goal uh, that the community as scientists, managers, resource managers uh, within the region thought was an important goal to, to get the bay back um, towards. So that 1950s level of seagrass coverage was sort of idealized conditions mm. for the bay prior to sort of the rapid urbanization and, and right. development that occurred between the 1950s and 1980s. And leading up to sort of that, that, that growth and development in the region, there was a lot of unabated uh, nutrient discharges, primarily from poorly treated wastewater treatment plants, right. as well as you know some of the urbanization and stormwater that was uh, was generated from that development um, into the estuary at that time. So we lost close to half the seagrasses uh, um, from those 1950s levels. So we were a little bit over about 21,000 acres in the early 1980s, and that really led a lot of um, action by citizens groups to call on additional water quality controls to improve nutrient conditions in the bay. 
Um, as Maya mentioned in that in that article, you know, it, nutrients are important because it overstimulates algal blooms in the bay and other seaweeds, and that shades out the, the important mm. underwater seagrasses in Tampa Bay. And again, those are foundational habitats for a lot of fish and wildlife, and really stabilize and create balance with the estuarine system. Mm-hmm. So once we lose those those important habitats, the estuary starts becoming what we we scientists call dystrophic or becomes out of balance. And that's what you're kind of seeing in other estuaries throughout the state of Florida. So this recent loss of seagrasses uh, over those peak conditions in 2016, although we're not getting back to those early 1980 levels, we haven't lost half the seagrass. It's it's approaching about 28% loss. If you look at 2016 to 2022, um, we're, we're heading in the wrong direction. We want to maintain those habitats moving forward. And that's important because in other estuaries like the Indian River Lagoon, you see um, you know, over the past decade, they they lost a significant amount of seagrasses and their system has become out of balance and they're having a series mm. of recurring algal blooms, sometimes harmful algal blooms that are causing other ecosystem problems uh, within their region. So we're not there yet. We, we do have some early signs that we might be heading in that direction. That's why it's important to reinvest in a lot of nutrient controls now moving forward. And some of those solutions are focused again on um, you know, looking for ways we can improve wastewater treatment in, in our estuary and that are discharged to our estuary, but also addressing a lot of the stormwater that's coming into Tampa Bay. That's a primary nutrient loading source. About mm. uh, over 60% of the nutrients that come into Tampa Bay come from stormwater sources. And that's basically a, a lot of the rainfall that's washed off our urban uh, urbanized environment and we are we are very much an urban estuary we only have about 33% of natural lands within that 2200 square mile wow. uh, watershed so it's important to protect those habitats because they again filter mm-hmm. a lot of that stormwater before it ever reaches the estuary and then there's important actions that that citizens can do in in terms of reducing what we call your watershed footprint. And such actions um, that Maya mentioned was, you know, being cognizant of fertilizer ordinances that are in place uh, during the summer rainy season. That's basically through June through September each year. So oftentimes, you know, we get afternoon rainfalls almost every day. If you're applying fertilizer, that that could wash off right. into the gutters, goes into a stormwater drain that eventually leads to a stormwater pond, then to a tidal creek and then ultimately the estuary. And yeah, that has so, an so just because a homeowner doesn't live on, you know, what we would think of as the water on Hillsborough River or one of the creeks or on the bay, it still has an effect. I mean, probably if you look at the watershed map, most of Hillsborough County is eventually the water could find its way, the rainwater could find its way to the bay or probably will eventually. Yeah, it's almost like finding Nemo. Uh, all drains <laughs> lead to the bay. Right, right. right. <laughs> Well, speaking of Nemo, tell us a little bit about the uh, the what, what inhabits the uh, seagrass and what if somebody was snorkeling or kayaking on across uh, one of the uh, tidal flats or one of the uh, very low low levels of water in Tampa Bay. What what could they expect to see? What kind of critters might they encounter? Yeah, we have a lot of pipefish and seahorse species mm-hmm. in those seagrasses, and you have to really look close to find those. A lot of mm-hmm. small pea, pea crabs. Juvenile stone crabs uh, find their way into seagrass beds, and then a lot of important recreational commercial species that we talked about: yeah, sea trout. The, the, uh, that's a primary habitat for a lot of uh, sea, sea trout and other drum species in Tampa Bay, like redfish, as well as snook as they now, grow older. 
I'm going to guess, and maybe you can correct me, do, do manatees, um, did they graze on seagrass? Is that something they're interested in? Yeah, that's an important okay. food source. And um, as I mentioned, you know, sort of the troubles that are being seen on the East Coast with the real significant loss of seagrasses on the East Coast, they've also seen implications to manatees because that's one of their main food sources. So we haven't reached um, those sort of conditions on the West Coast of Florida. Um, but again, the more seagrasses we lose, the more potential that it could have cascading mm. ecosystem effects to higher, what we call higher trophic levels or, or things like manatees uh, that, that depend on seagrasses for food. So we... Well, the people that listen to WMNF and maybe other listeners are aware of like the uh, the manatee starvation crisis that was happening. What ideally would be going on in the environment so manatees don't starve? I mean, other than seagrass or in additional to seagrass. Well, I and mean, they were supplementing their diet with a lot of, of feeding. Right, uh, just right. Just to get them were, through the winters. Yeah, right. But, um, you know, the key is to maintain seagrass beds okay. in healthy condition and um, and get those coverages back so that that doesn't become a limitation for their their diets and health. Right. So I guess my my point is a manatee should be starving to death. I mean, in in nature, is, you know, Mother Nature intended, a manatee's going to have plenty to eat if we would not destroy the seagrass and their environment in general. Yeah, there's there's that feedback. They're they're called sea cows. Right. They have that grazing (laughs) sort of. Yes, they uh, are. uh, sort of uh, role and responsibility within the estuary and, and they enhance and uh, stabilize the ecosystem too. Right. Well, maybe we'll shift a little bit over to the uh, the uh, tidal flats and the uh, hard bottom parts of the bay. Uh, and I'm thinking of um, the rays and things that kind of get into the sand and mm-hmm. kind of bury themselves. And I know that, well, I think I know that they migrate because I've seen cow rays and swarms going places. I'm not sure where they're going, but maybe you could give us a little bit of insight on what the, the cow rays are up to. Yeah, I, they they fish often, t- or sorry, they feed oftentimes on uh, shellfish, mollusk species. Mm-hmm. So um, there's large aggregations that come into the bay seasonally, and okay. oftentimes they make their way, the videos make their way onto <laughs> the news when you see those, those big aggregations. Um, but the, a lot of things they feed on, like um, bay scallops, live within seagrasses. Uh, they're kind of hunting out those, those mollusk species to feed on. Um, and bay scallops are another sort of important sentinel animal. Right. Uh, so as seagrasses come and go, mm-hmm. sort of, so do uh, bay scallop populations. And we've at one time had a bay scallop fishery in Tampa Bay. Uh, really? But the population doesn't support that okay. now. Well, okay. There's... A group, Tampa Bay Watch, that conducts an annual scallop mm-hmm. search, kind of takes a census of how much scallops are in Tampa Bay. And the numbers haven't been so great as of late. So mm. a lot of that is dependent on receiving a lot of the larvae from north and south of Tampa Bay. Mm-hmm. So we, uh, those populations north and south have to be healthy for us to have a healthy Bay scallop okay. population. So it's important to sure, take that into consideration as as you enjoy the scallop season uh, this this summer. You, know, you don't want to overharvest a lot of the right. scallops because that can potentially well, I, impact the populations. In just Bay. just to take a little little bit of a detour, I know the Nature Coast, Homosassa, Crystal River area is known for scalloping. At one time, did Tampa Bay have an, enough scallops to to actually be kind of a destination for scalloping, or has it always been kind of a 
a smaller scallop population. There was actually commercial fisheries through the 1950s. Wow. Yeah, okay. So it actually supported commercial okay. uh, scalloping. Okay. Uh, so we, we would like to see a sustainable population of uh, scallops, bay scallops back in Tampa Bay. And that's sort of a longer term goal. And a lot of that, again, is contingent on us maintaining a healthy seagrass coverage in Tampa Bay all the way up into the upper reaches. So while we're talking about uh, mollusks, what, uh, tell, tell me what's going on with oysters. I know you have a habitat restoration program. Maybe we can kind of segue into that a little bit. But um, I know at one time there was, a, I guess, an oyster fishery, a pretty significant, as uh, I remember, as I can kind of recall. So if you want to talk about oysters a little bit. <laughs> yeah, um, that's an, another important estuarine habitat. So we, we talked a little bit about tidal creeks and seagrasses. Right. But oysters are another foundational estuarine habitat that a lot of fish and wildlife depend upon. Back in the late 1800s, you know, there's a lot of historic accounts mm-hmm. about the prolific oyster uh, reefs in Tampa Bay, right. particularly around Fort Brook, up in uh, up around the uh, main downtown region of Tampa. Um, those oyster beds have diminished since that time. A lot of that has, was through overharvesting. Mm. Uh, so we have some restoration goals, uh, looking about, uh, at trying to get about 50 acres of oyster habitat back in the Bay by 2030. Uh, there's some projects coming down the pipe that we're hoping will, will get us towards those goals, particularly in the Mantee River, which was once called the Oyster River, uh, <laughs> and working with partners like Mantee County to kickstart some of those oyster restoration efforts. Um, secondarily, there's opportunities to enhance oysters in the Bay by citizens. Mm-hmm. Uh, we um, promote a program called our Vertical Oyster Gardens. Uh, you could go on our website to learn more about that. But basically, it's hanging strings with oyster shells under waterfront areas uh-huh. or docks um, along Tampa Bay. And that uh, promotes what's called spat or the small oysters to settle out onto mm-hmm. those shells and then grow reefs underneath those docks. And that's just enhancing some of the modified shorelines that we have throughout Tampa Bay with, with these important oyster habitats. Yeah, because as far as I remember, oysters, when, when they're, they're born, they're not attached to anything. They kind of drift through the water until they find a good, good resting spot or a, a colony or something to attach to. So Maybe it's something people don't don't think about. You know, when you see a, a oyster bed out in the bay or or something like that, it's like, where did where did that little guy come from? Well, he came from a, basically a big colony and maybe drifted off. Is that how that works? Yeah, kind of similar to the redfish story. Right, right. So the the small eggs and larvae will move around based on winds and currents, and then once they find a suitable suitable substrate, they'll settle out okay. and attach to them and start developing reef. Um, and, and primarily in the upper reaches where they're uh, less susceptible to di- disease. So okay. they, uh, they like areas where there's that transition between freshwater and saltwater mm-hmm. because that's sort of their niche within the estuaries. Right. I, I know that they, um, kind of news to me, but when they were talking about the uh, water flow being restricted in the panhandle in Apalachicola, oysters actually require a certain amount of fresh water. And I know the bay, we'll talk about this in a second, but the uh, the water flow in and out of the bay or through the estuary into the bay itself um, has been somewhat improved. But I guess the water flow, the freshwater flow into the bay as part of the estuary is hugely important, to, well, as we're talking about to all these species, but particularly to oysters. 
Yeah, yeah oysters and, and we suspect seagrasses. Okay. Uh, some of the areas in old Tampa Bay where we've seen like huge declines, those 4,000 acres plus that we lost mm-hmm. between 2020 and 2022, we attribute some of that to poor circulation in old Tampa Bay. Um, if you look at a map, you know, the three main bridges that link uh, Tampa to the right. Pinellas Peninsula, Clearwater and St. Pete are uh, bisect um, uh, old Tampa Bay. And there's mm-hmm. long causeways associated with those bridges. Right. And what happens, you know, when water comes into the bay, that fresh water comes into the bay, there's what's called long residence times. It doesn't get out of those bay segments. Uh-huh. And if there's a lot of nutrients in that water that can... T- stimulate algal growth. And in old Tampa Bay in particular, we have one vexing uh, algal bloom that occurs every summer. Mm. It's, it's called pyridinium. Uh, it's a dinoflagellate that's um, similar to red tide. It also co- uh, uh, causes a brown crimson discoloration in the water, primarily through the May through September period. Uh, and it is considered a harmful algal bloom. It could cause fish gills it has in the past, but not to the to the extent that red tides mm-hmm. do. But that's really our our nuisance, harmful algal bloom that we're trying to deal with in the old Tampa Bay segment. A lot of that is trying to control stormwater nutrient loads as well as other nutrients flowing into that bay segment, but also, like you mentioned, improving water circulation so the water isn't stagnant and stimulating that algal growth uh, each summer. And again, when those algae grow, they shade out the water column, mm. light doesn't reach the bay bottom. Plants need light to grow. Seagrasses uh, operate on, under those, uh, you know, ideal light conditions. So they need a, a certain amount of light to, you know, proliferate. And all that's part of the recipe of trying to get the, the bay back on track is dealing with those those primary causes of, of what we feel is um, contributed to the seagrass losses. That This is fascinating to me. And I, I guess I was reading on the website that the... Uh, Seagrass actually improves the water clarity. So that's something I think everybody that wants to look around under the water should be concerned about, right? To, you know, a little bit clearer. I mean, things affect the water clarity, but seagrass actually improve it, as yeah. I understand. Yeah. So if you think about, like, uh, some of the areas, if you've ever waded out into a seagrass bed on, along a shallow flat, um, you know, just the the physical nature of the seagrasses, they trap sediments mm-hmm. and they they sort of build up the sediments and that has a, a water clarifying benefit. And when those things go away, you have basically barren sand and, and tidal flats. So any sort of wind action or wave action just mobilizes that sediment and creates, it, creates more uh, issues. It's almost like a negative feedback loop. Once you start losing those seagrasses, you get worse water quality right. conditions. Right, okay. I mean, it's kind of downward spiral, it sounds like. Um, And just real quick, I know that the Courtney Campbell Causeway, which anybody living in the area is probably familiar with, they added a bridge, which isn't really a bridge, I guess, but almost like a wildlife corridor in the Courtney Campbell Bridge. If you have some information on that, that's another thing that fascinates me. Because the Courtney Campbell almost, except for the one big bridge and another smaller bridge, almost stopped up uh, Upper Tampa Bay, so... Yeah, the the whole reason why that bridge was constructed was to try to improve water quality just north of the bridge Mm -hmm. so that um, salinities were stable enough to promote um, stable seagrass beds of shoalgrass. That's basically uh, adjacent to Benty Davis um, Beach on the east side of the Courtney Campbell. There's also efforts now looking at um, the city of Clearwater is looking at doing a similar project with FDOT on the western side of the Courtney Campbell as well. Wow. 
And we, we hope there's other opportunities uh-huh. to look at other causeways like the Howard Franklin mm-hmm. Bridge to do uh, similar sort of work. Again, just trying to move some of that water through um, those areas of uh, old Tampa Bay that become stagnant over time. And, and there's sort of these right. gyres and circulation patterns that's trapping water uh, that's running off from the watershed in those areas and, and contributing to some of these environmental issues right. we've been talking I about. I mean, I think I think it's pretty, pretty huge myself. And it's kind of kind of maybe trying to make some uh, a little uh, backstepping into some of the environmental environmental damage that was done in the uh, earlier times, 50s, 60s, I suppose. Yeah, the, the Courtney Campbell goes all the way back to the 1920s. 20s, no yeah. kidding, okay. I knew it had been there for a while. I knew the whole area along Courtney Campbell's changed remarkably. I mean, it's, it's incredible from what it used to be when I was growing up to what it is now with the, the development on the little island on Rocky Point Island and uh, the, the loss of a uh, beachfront and all kinds of things like that. It's a whole, whole nother discussion. <laughs> yeah, sort of a tangent. At one time, actually, I believe in the 1970s, they were actually proposing making the areas above the Courtney Campbell freshwater reservoir for water supply. No so, kidding. So they're, they're contemplating closing it off to the estuary and tidal circulation mm. to create some freshwater reservoirs. Well, a more recent um, environmental outrage, um, Sweetwater Creek, one of the developers that took over a property and the, um, I guess it's where the Shriners, I'll call it the Shriners Temple for lack of a better term, used to be a developer, took that property over and wanted to fill in some area that had been made into a lagoon so he would have more building area and I guess that, that was shot down pretty uh, readily but that whole area used to be uh, grass flat. What's the uh, the tubular pointy grass that grows in the tidal areas? Yeah so there's there's three main seagrasses the the one you're talking about the tubular one if you roll it between your fingers and it feels um, almost like a syringe or right, around it's right. part of its its scientific name. It's called manatee grass. Oh, okay. So it grows fairly long. Um, it's more prolific around middle Tampa Bay, so anywhere from like St. Pete up to probably about the Gandhi, Howard Franklin bridges. Um, but it, it's one of the main seagrasses uh, that's found in Tampa Bay. Well, there were huge, uh, actually really beautiful swath of that just south of Memorial Highway that's all been developed and made into uh, housing development. Like I said, the Shriners area was there, which is now a big housing development. And anyway, it's... That that area off Rocky Point is pretty unique. Uh, That's actually an awesome area to snorkel. Um, Oh, wow. Yeah, it has a mix of seagrasses. Um, it's also sort of a hotspot area where we're, we're sort of seeing these transitions and losses of seagrasses as well. Uh, so it has a mix of hard bottom habitats there, um, just south of, of the Courtney Campbell on the mm-hmm. east side of Old Tampa Bay. But it's, a, it's a good fishing spot too. There's a lot of fishermen <laughs> out on that flat as well. Well, in our last couple of minutes with you, um, give listeners uh your your recommendations on where they can go and maybe observe seagrass and uh, you know good snorkeling places places with uh, boardwalks things like that I've I've got a few off the top of my head but maybe you know some other others. there's a bunch oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> well where's a good place to find that kind of information yeah there's there's so many hidden gems uh, within Tampa Bay that um, especially people just moving to the region mm-hmm. are, are probably aware of a lot of great resources for a lot of the smaller, um, well, 
in some cases, very large areas is through the water management district, the okay. recreational areas. There's a, a lot of hidden gems. They don't have many facilities, but they're oftentimes in a lot of it ecologically important areas like the Green Swamp area, which is the headwaters right. of the Hillsborough River. There's a lot of great preserves up there. And then, you know, we have several aquatic preserves, um, both on Pinellas and Hillsborough, Manti side of the bay. Uh, Tercy Aquatic Preserve, Cockroach Bay Aquatic Preserve. Those are all great uh, areas to get out and kayak. And there's also associated mangrove tunnels you could kayak through and, and paddleboard through. Um, Emerson Point is, is one of my favorite areas. Um, the the kayak launch um, in Emerson Point, if you go through it during the summer time period, sometimes you can see starfish on the mangrove roots going mm-hmm. out through the, the mangrove tunnels and you make your way out into Tercia Bay with some prolific seagrass flats. Oftentimes you see manatees there during the summer as well. So that's one of my favorite uh, spots to, cool. to kayak and paddleboard as well. But yeah, just get out and explore. That's what we try to encourage through our, our program as well, uh, particularly with um, youth within the mm-hmm. uh, within the estuary. Because if you're not that out there exploring, you don't know what you're losing uh, once it's gone. So it's important to, to have that ethos uh, within our community um, because it really defines our region as the place we love to work, live, and play. Awesome. Um, and again, get, give uh, listeners your website and contact information if they had any further questions or uh, uh, direct them to where somebody might go to find out more information. Yeah, tbep.org, as in Tampa Bay Estuary Program.org, is our main website. We have a a bunch of different tools and, and, and different ways you could connect with us. We have several volunteer events. We call them our give a day for Tampa Bay events. Um, there's one actually uh, April 21st, right before Earth Day. It's an island cleanup. And then later on, uh, I believe around May 20th, uh, we have a, um, a, a plant uh, restoration and planting it in Cockroach Bay uh, to help uh, kickstart some of the habitat restoration that has occurred there. Uh, so seek out that resource. You could also call our office directly and we could direct you to other agencies that work with our partners that that might be able to address your questions better. And you can reach us at 727-893-2765. And like I said, our our website has a host of different data resources and... and, Fabulous, uh, fabulous website. I can't say enough about it. I mean, it just really gave me uh, second thoughts about trying to do this show because there was so much information try, trying to figure out what to zero in on. We did get one uh, listener question. They wanted to know if manatees were indigenous to Florida. Yeah, the West Indian manatee and uh, South Florida in particular, yeah. And we, ho- we hope they get some seagrass to, to munch on. Yeah. <laughs> um, let me give listeners a quick Pitch for you, you will be speaking at Pints of Science and New World Brewery, along with two other speakers, Kimberly, Kimberly Crossland on Teen Runaways and Jamie Rogers on Intertidal Archaeology. This takes place May 10th. New World Brewery is located at 810 East Skagway in Tampa, kind of in right off of Bush and um, Nebraska Avenue. <clears throat> uh, hope that, Hopefully they'll have information up on their website fairly soon. Um, you can ask Ed a lot of questions when you see him. And that, that is limited capacity. Um, you don't have to pay an entrance fee, but you do need to register ahead of time. They've got about 100, 120 seat capacity. Um, so if you're interested in that, please uh, check back in to, let's see, I believe it's newworldbrewery.net. 
Thank you so much for coming in today. We've got a song queued up for you. <laughs> uh, we're going to hear uh, Weird Fishes by Radiohead <laughs> to take you out, send you on your way. Thank you, Chris, for joining us. Thank you. And uh, we'll be back with a couple more announcements in a minute. Thank you. We're listening to Radiohead Weird Fishes. For That was for our guest, Ed Sherwood, and uh, we thank him so much for coming in. Please do check out the Tampa Bay Estuary Program and their fabulous website. And if you're available, um, he will be speaking at New World Brewery on May 10th. We're going to step into the comedy corner now because that's what we do on Talking Animals. And this will give us a good lead into next week's guest will be Heidi. Excuse me. From Mercy Full. She will be our guest uh, next Wednesday on May. I believe it's May 19th. Yes, May 19th, Heidi. Akuna from the Mercy Full Project uh, Area Rescue and Advocacy Program. 
I, <laughs> I really am a boring person when I'm home. I just hang out at the house. I hang out with my cat. I got a cat named Jessica. Uh, thank you. I'm a cat person. Are there any other cat people out there? Yeah? Got some cat people here? Nice. I'm guessing the rest of you are dog people. Is that what it is? Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm not anti-dog, you know. Every time I tell someone I'm a cat person, like, what does that mean, you don't like dogs? No, that's not what that means. It just means I like other people's dogs. I like dogs, I just like them over there. And I'll play with them, but then go back over there. I don't like that kind of energy in my house. You know what I mean? That annoying dog, best friend in your face all the time energy. Just like, yeah! I love you! <laughs> You're home, where have you been? <laughs> creeps me out. I don't care for that. I don't like that at all. <laughs> Just in your face. Like, you want to go out? There's a tree. I know this tree. You want to hang out at this tree? What if I just keep breathing into your face? <laughs> Ugh. All the time? No, thank you. That's why I like cats. Cats are more like, hey, what are you up to? Uh, never mind. I just remembered I don't care. Uh, I'll be in the kitchen. I'll see you later. I like that. I don't need a best friend at the house. I just need like an apathetic roommate that sometimes wants to hang out. Like a dog, you can pet a dog's belly all day. They'll never get tired of it, just all day. Just like, yeah, man, never stop. You're the best. <laughs> Hopefully not that creepy, but you get the idea. A cat, you can pet for what? Two, maybe three seconds? And so it's like, all right, get away from me. My own thing's going on. I got a pile of clean laundry to lay on. Get away from me. That's what my cat does. It waits for the pile of clean laundry we haven't folded yet and just rubs on it while making eye contact. Just like, mm-hmm. Everyone's gonna know. <laughs> so bothersome. That was Zoltan Kazas with uh, cat jokes, and he is a cat person. Up next, we're gonna hear from Elon Joel. She's one of the headliners at this year's Tropical Heat Wave. Tropical Heat Wave is May 6th. Full information can be found on WMNF.org. But Elon Jewell will be in, well, she's not literally in with Marcy. Marcy will air her interview, her discussion, her intimate discussion with Elon Jewell this Saturday on Marcy's show Words and Music. That will be coming up um, probably around, well, her show airs from 10 to a, a noon on Saturday, probably around 11 o'clock. She'll be speaking with Elon Jewell. Again, coming to Tropical Heat Wave, May 6th. Oh, songbird in my darkest night, you sing. So sweetly I can't be afraid Over my path your song casts a light So bright, so real I won't lose my way I set true north by you So all directions too Songbird, what did I do Before you what did I do before you? Oh, songbird in my weariest day A few clear notes is all I need And I see without warning a precious ray Magic in each ordinary thing 
a sad out of the blue Songbird, what would I do without you? What would I do without you? How'd you get so strong, such a little thing? Is it your song that makes you brave? My whole world rests on those tiny wings But you don't seem to mind the weight I set true north by you And so all directions too Songbird, what did I do before you? What did I do before you? Elin Joel coming to Tropical Heatwave. That is her song, Songbird. I'm going to leave you off with a little David Dondero. WMF favorite David Dondero will be performing at Crab Devil this Saturday, April 15th at Crab Devil. Brand new venue, art installation, art cooperative on Nebraska Avenue, just south of WMNF. Thank you for joining us today. Duncan will be back in two weeks. Here a little bit of David Dondero taking us up to NPR News. Saw one legged man walk a three legged dog. See a one legged man walk a three legged dog. See a one legged man walk a three legged dog. See an old alley cat, he was not. On the foot of a hog I saw a little green chameleon Saw a baby green chameleon Down in Opelousas on a porch swing And he's trying hard to blend in But I seen him Yeah, I saw him you're tuned to 88.5 WMNF Tampa. Scott Elliott's up next. We'll see you next week.